Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn back to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah is on the left-hand side of your Bible, and if you're struggling to find that, uh, as I always say, the Bible is like many other books, it has a table of contents. So if you'll open up to one of those first two or three pages, you should be able to find a page number for where you can find Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter number... Five. I'm going to do my best today to walk us down through this chapter, and uh, if I don't finish, we'll just come back next week and pick up where we left off. Uh, so would you, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer that the Lord would bless this time together? Our Father, we now come to You and we ask in the name of Jesus that You would honor Your Word. And I pray that the Spirit of the Lord God would anoint me to bring good news to the afflicted. Lord, I pray that You would lift up the discouraged today. And I pray for those that are sinners that they would turn to Christ. And I pray for our church that You would unify us and make us strong, Lord, in the work of Your kingdom. And we will thank You for all that You do today. For it is in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. You know, uh, one of the things I liked when I was in 7th and 8th grade was uh, when you got to do the science lab and you were dissecting the little fetal pigs and the frogs. Did anybody else ever have that? Maybe, okay, somebody said, uh, well, you know, just before lunch, I figured I would help you out with your <laughs> diet plan. But you know, uh, I, I don't think they'll do this anymore. I think they ship them, but you know, back in the day, uh, they, would take the, they would take that frog or whatever and put it in the water and then put the Bunsen burner on low, and uh, the frog would be, be kind of in a jacuzzi. Everything would be warm and nice. And over the period of about two hours, they would humanely, the frog would die because the frog never realized that the internal temperature of his body was rising to the point that it was going to kill him. There was no enemy from the outside. There was nothing to fear. Uh, the, the frog was perfectly fine, but the internal temperature of the frog would rise to the point until it would die. And when we come to the place in Nehemiah chapter number 5, the previous few chapters, we have seen enemies from without. In fact, you remember last week we talked about Sambalat and Tobiah, these enemies that were from without. And uh, all of the church of Israel, were uh, they had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, and they were working on the wall and fighting the enemy. And they were, they were ready for anything that came from the outside, if you remember us discussing that last week. But when we come to chapter 5 this week, uh, the most grave and the worst problem that can possibly take place is is not so much the enemy from the outside, but it is the enemy from within. It is not that they are defeated by all of this stuff coming from the outside, but it's what is within that truly matters in this situation. And you know, as we relate that into church life, I would say uh, for any of you that have had the uh, terrible uh, time of maybe being in a church that had a split, or had several people leave, or had factions or fights, just think back about the last church you were in that had a split or had a major problem. Did it come from without? 
Was your church fighting uh, against false doctrine? Was your church standing tall and standing strong and the enemy from without came in and caused division? Or the last major church that you were a part of that had the major problems in it, did it happen because it came from within? Where people were mistreated. Where attitudes and resentment and bitterness festered and grew. Where people did not get their way right away, like Burger King, and so they begin to talk and call and do all of these kinds of things. And little by little by little, not the enemy from without, but the enemy from within did his greatest damage within the body of Christ, where people of the Lord were hurting each other and causing division in the body. I cannot, this this week I was thinking about all the churches that I've been to growing up, I cannot remember one church that had a major problem from without. But sadly, I can remember many times where they had problems from within. And I've told you before, you know, my mom, she lives down in Salisbury, she'll be here next weekend with us. My mom faithfully listens to the sermon online every week and if it doesn't go up on Monday she'll call me and say why isn't it up yet and every time I preach on unity in the body of Christ my mom will call me on Monday honey is everything okay in the church (laughs) mom everything is fine today's sermon is simply some preparation work and for us to guard our hearts And for us to always remember not to just take for granted the great unity and the joy and the peace that God has brought us over the past several years, but that we work at it and we fight for it tooth and nail. That we we spend our time looking to the cross and looking to the God of heaven and behold our God who is seated upon His throne. That we give everything to Him and that we look to each other and we say we are brothers and sisters. We are family of God. And yes, there may be times where we disagree. Yes, there may be multiple kinds of personalities within the body of Christ, within His family, but we are one body and we are together. We are one heartbeat. We are one body, one Lord, one mind, one faith. That's what the New Testament has to say. And that is the way that we should live. We must never, ever, ever allow the enemy from without or the enemy from within to take root and hold in the lives of our church. And so I want to divide this chapter up into just three major sections. Let me give you those three points in case I don't get all the way through. Verse number 1 through verse number 5 is the great outcry The great outcry. And lest you think I spent multiple years at seminary to come up with that kind of great title, I just stole that out of verse number 1. See, now there was a great outcry of the people. All right, Verse 1 through number 5 is the great outcry. Verse 6 down through verse number uh, 13, we'll call that the great assembly. And once again, you can see in verse number 7 where I got that at the end of the verse. Therefore, Nehemiah says, therefore, I held a great assembly against them. Verse 1 through 5, the great outcry. Verse 6 down through verse number 13, the great assembly. And verse 14 down through verse number 19, I've entitled not straight from the text, but inferred here, the great example. 
The great example. And where I get that from is uh, verse number 14 there. Uh, you'll find that Nehemiah says that uh, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten of the governor's food allowance. And so he is going to correct the body of Christ, but he is not living high on the hog. He is not living and living in an ivory tower. He is not asking the people to do something that he himself is not ready and prepared to give his life for. He is going to give us a great Example. So let me walk down through verse number 1 through 5 and just show you here the great outcry. It says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, now you want to circle there, it says those who said. There were those who said, We, uh, our sons and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. Therefore, there were others who said, there it is again, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Verse number four. Also, there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our uh, daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now let me walk back through these verses and just show you why there was this great outcry. Verse number one, it says, there was this great outcry, and it is not, it is no mere complaining or an attitude. The word here has to do with this, I, it is a revolt. These people are close to death. They're not able to eat, and they're being taken advantage of, and they're mortgaging their house. Their sons, their daughters, their friends are going into slavery. Things are going downhill very quickly. And it says here that the wives, even the wives here are speaking out. And what that tells you is in this day and time in the Old Testament, the women in this, in this period would remain quiet most of the time. It was the men who did the business in the public square of life, but they are taxing and hurting the brothers within the community of God so bad that even the wives and the children are crying out and saying, this is not fair, we are being treated wrong. But I want you to see from verse number 1, here is the major problem. Look and circle it if you would. Now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives market against their Jewish brothers. Not against the outside world, not against the other nations, not against the king, not against the taxes of Artaxerxes, but against the brothers in the community of God. And I want to just pause for a moment and I want to say, listen, we have to be united and the world around us, the culture around us, our society is closing in. What we, the way we live, it is different. There is a difference between the way we live and the way the world lives and they are against us. The world is against us. And how are we going to stand for Jesus and live for the Lord and be a testimony in the world if we have friendly fire going on within the realms of our church? I'm pleading with you today, as I do probably every month, I'm pleading with our church. And you say, man, we're happy. Everything's going well. The Lord's blessing. I, I'm just telling you, do not take that for granted. 
Don't let bitterness, don't let anger, don't let resentment settle in your heart. You must be the kind of person that looks to the person beside you in these pews and says, that is my brother, that is my sister. I will treat them with the utmost respect. I will not try and get a leg up on them like the world does. But there is a difference. There is a difference between the community of God and the outside lost world. We must be the kind of people that love each other and care for each other and treat each other with the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. There must not be problems. Notice four categories in these first five verses. First of all, in there in verse number two, it says there's this category of people and they don't have food. They don't have anything to eat. Now, certainly within the body of Christ here, we don't necessarily have that uh, running rampant within our congregation, but I want to say something to you. Within the broader body of Christ, both our church and the churches within our community and the churches within the world, there are plenty of people that are going without food. And you may not be starving today, but there are brothers and sisters in our congregation who they are living from paycheck to paycheck. They are living from uh, one week to the next. They are shopping and getting the coupons and the most deals they can possibly get because they don't have the money. And I want to say something to us. We are not to take advantage of brothers and sisters within the body of Christ who are struggling financially, cannot pay bills, and cannot bring food into the home. Amen? God has called us to care for the world and its needs. And God has also called us to care for the needs of the people of the body of Christ. There's a next group of people in verse number 3. Not necessarily that they're starving to death, but these are the kind of people that have a home and they're mortgaging their own house. They're having to pay Rob Peter to pay Paul. They don't have the money. And guess what's happening? There are other brothers at the end in verse number 5 that are taking advantage of the people of God. And I just want to give us an admonition today. There is an outcry in this passage. We should not be the kind of people that take advantage of brothers and sisters. Some of those folks are hungry. Some of those folks are robbing Peter to pay Paul. And then what's it say? Some of those folks are selling everything that they have and even their sons and daughters are going into slavery and servitude just so they can put food in their mouth. And here's the part of verse number 1 through 5 that just sickens you and puts that rock at the bottom of your stomach. Look back at verse number, uh, verse number 4 and 5. Oh, verse 5. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Don't you see these people crying out? They're saying, listen, our, our children are flesh and blood just like the rich people in this church. We may not have that nice place along the wall here that we're building. We may not have all the money. We may not have all of the niceties of life. But I want you to understand something, that we're made of flesh and blood too, and we're a part of the community of God. And I just want to say something to our people here. Hey, listen. Everybody in here is a sinner. And everybody in here that is saved by grace, whether they have a lot of money in the bank or no money in the bank, they're your brother, they're your sister, and they deserve your respect and your honor. Amen, that is right. I'm so thankful for where the Lord has brought us. 
I may, may just premature application. In fact, might not even be application. It might just be a rabbit trail. But I, I, when I came here, I, I remember sitting in the uh, search committee and telling them, you know, at, at some point they were looking for a guy that was, you know, 45 years old with 57 years of experience, and that wasn't me. And, uh, and so, I, I, you know, I didn't have a whole bunch to lose at that time, but I remember just saying, look, I'm not, I'm not going to pastor a church. you got a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, matriarchs and patriarchs. Rich people don't run everything. And poor people don't run everything. God's people who are saved and humble and graciously serving Him, that's the way we're going to live. Doesn't matter whether you think that's right or not, that's right, that's Bible. If you've been here 50 years, we'll praise God, lift you up as a banner of the glory of God and what He can do with the life. If you've been here your first day, praise God, you're a part of the body of Christ. We're not going to have that here. We're not going to look down and disrespect and condescend to people that don't look like us and act like us and smell like us and have the same hobbies as us. We're going to come in here together and we're going to figure out a way to make it work week in and week out because we are around the rallying cry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? He's what matters. Look at verse number 5. It says, Yet behold, we are forcing our children like their children and their sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. The fourth group that's in this passage, 1-5, through five, is the group of shrewd Jewish business people who slipped into the body of Christ, right, or the body of Israel there, God's, God's chosen people from the Old Testament. They're there. They're, they're shrewd business people. And they say, hmm, I can make a buck off of my brother's hardship. I put in your bulletin, there is a difference. There is a difference between the way that the community of God should behave and the way that the world lives. And I just want to say that we start here and we carry it out into the world. You should treat the people of God with grace and kindness and not usury and not exacting interest and not stepping over people in God's church to get a buck and to get ahead in life. You shouldn't do that here and you shouldn't do that out in the world. I want to tell you, as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, our ethics are different than the world's ethics. It is not about just doing whatever it takes to make the most money sometimes doing and being what it means to be a Christian is it might be a loss to you. It might mean that you have to take the loss in order to honor Christ and honor the Lord and lift up those that are around you and help out the body of Christ. The ethic in which we live is not dog-eat-dog world. Get everything you can and can all you get. That's not the way we live. Our lives do not belong to us. We have been purchased. We have been bought. Jesus died for us. We do not belong to ourselves. And you can let go of those goals of trying to just hoard everything you can in life. Instead, you ought to be the kind of person that sees other folks that are hurting and in need and lift them up and give it away. 
Our dear brother at our deacon retreat said that uh, John Wesley said, uh, make all you can, save all you can, so you can give all you can. Is that the way you live? Nothing wrong with making. Nothing wrong with, with working hard and, and, and making. But I think the idea behind that then is to be frugal and to save so that you can have the opportunity to give and pour out love and grace toward other people. There's an outcry in this passage of people that have come in and the problem is not from the outside. The problem is from within. Let me just make one point of application. I'll move to that second section. Unity is not natural to fallen human people. It has to be fought for. What comes natural to sinful people is I'm going to get mine. And if you can get yours while I'm getting mine, so be it. But I'm going to do whatever it takes to get mine and hold on to mine. When we operate in this church without division and fractures and problems from within, we are the testimony of Jesus Christ to the world around us that it can be done. That you can take this many people from this various backgrounds, from these different ethnicities, put us all in one place together, and somehow, by the grace of God, we figure out how to rally behind Jesus and make it work. And we fight for it. We work at it. And I'm telling us on the authority of the Scripture today that if we don't work at it, disunity and strife and problems will arise. We're always fighting what's from without. We must be careful about the problems within. That not only goes for the church of Christ, that goes for your own individual life as well. Jesus said it's not what comes into a man or a woman or a boy or a girl that makes him sinful. It's what comes out of the heart. Jesus looked at a bunch of religious and dare I say, Baptistic Pharisees. And he said, you look beautiful on the outside. Your Sunday dress looks great. You brushed your teeth today, thank God. Your earrings are beautiful. You shined your shoes. You came to church. You know how to speak. But on the inside, you're as rotten as the backside of a Florida orange that's laid on the ground too long. Some of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. Let me tell you what boys do when they're 8 and 10 years old in Florida. They have rotten orange fights. And the oranges fall off the tree. In the middle of the summer when you're outside all day and your dad says don't come in until supper time, what you eat is the oranges that have fallen off the tree. But sometimes you'll reach down and you think that you're, you you're going to get you an orange that fell off the tree and uh, you're going to eat the pulp and suck the juice out of it. And when you reach down, the front side looks good and the bottom side is laid on the ground too long and there's maggots in it. And so, you know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. You just pick that up and throw it at your brother. Oh, man. Oh, man. Moms and dads will be having a meeting with me after church. I don't even remember where I was. All, all, I'm saying is, all, all I'm saying is this. 
It's, it's not so much what the outside looks like, it's what the inside is like. And it's important in our church and in our lives, what's on the inside matters. Is that a fair takeaway today? What's on the inside matters. And I just want our church to be aware of that. And I want every individual in here today to be aware of what's on the inside of your life matters. And if you have some areas of your life right now that are rotten, if you're leaning too much on a human relationship, no matter how good it is, instead of on God, that's a rotten area of your life that you need to get fixed. If you've got issues in your life of pride and selfishness like these people, going to make a buck off of God's people. I read this week where Warren Wiersbe said that. I thought this was great. He said the definition of selfishness is not only wanting everything your way, but wanting everybody else to want it your way. Isn't that right? And if that's the kind of person you are, there's some rottenness in your life. There's an outcry in this passage. And it's time to get things right. Let me show you the second section. There's a great assembly. Look at verse number 6. I think for some it helps if I just read the whole passage and then come back and teach. So that's what I'll do. Now, verse number 6. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I consulted within myself. I contended with the nobles and the rulers, and I said to them, you're exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore I held this great assembly against them. And I said this to them, we according to our ability have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that you may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. And again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good, it's wrong. Should you not walk in the fear or the respect or the awe of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off the usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, and also a hundredth part of the money of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priest and I took an oath from them that they would do according to the promise. And I also shook out the folds, or yeah, maybe a better translation would be, I just emptied out my pockets. I shook out the folds from my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all of the assembly said, Amen. Amen. I don't know. However you want to pronounce it. And they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to the promise. Nehemiah comes into this section and he holds a great assembly. Let me just point out a few things that I think are worth for all of us to think through. From verses 6 and 7, notice the way that Nehemiah goes about confrontation. 
And let me just pause there and say for a moment, I don't like confrontation any more than you do. I get that lump in the throat. I get the sweat on my forehead. My palms get a little clammy. I never like to confront people. None of us do. We would rather pretend that it doesn't exist, sweep it under the rug. We would rather just ignore it and turn the music up louder. But I am telling you, within the body of Christ, there come those times where we must graciously confront sin. That needs to happen with our children. That needs to happen with each other in the body of Christ. That even needs to happen on a corporate level and in our own lives. We must be confronted when we do wrong. Notice the way that he goes about it. First of all, from verse number 6, that he was very angry. And I want to say something to you. There are some things in this world that if you don't get angry over as a Christian, something's wrong with your heart. We must be careful about anger because our sinful hearts are prone to go too far. But if your heart doesn't get angry over genocide and murder and, and, and all of these things, if, you're, if your heart can just go along, then it's callous and overruled. There ought to be things in our life where we have a godly, righteous indignation and we say, that is wrong and it angers the heart of God. It should anger my heart. And why do you think, pray tell, Nehemiah is angry in verse number 6? Because what is going on in verse number 1 through 5 is disunity. These people are trying to break up the people of God. These people are trying to hurt the work of God. And so when they bring disunity, they are hurting the heart of God. And Nehemiah says that must not happen. Do you know why disunity in church life is so detestable? You know why it is at least once a month, whether the text calls for it or not, I preach on unity? Because if there's ever a faction, if there's undealt with bitterness and resentment and gossip, it breaks the heart of God. And it disrupts the flow of the gospel to the world. And it's a bad testimony of Jesus. That's why Nehemiah gets angry. But look what he does. He writes the email, but he doesn't press the send button. Look at verse number 7. I consulted with myself. Some translations say, I thought, I, I, had a, I had a reasoning session in my mind. I thought deeply upon these things. I consulted with myself. And I want to say that part of the process of confrontation, yes, there should be an anger. There should be, there should be this isn't right, this was done wrong, there's something going on here. But don't hit that, don't hit send, uh, don't send that text, don't send that email quiet yet. Write it out and then go to sleep and consult in your heart and wait on it and pray on it. And what you'll find is generally you'll come back the next day and you'll delete that email and you'll say, you know what? What happened to me was wrong. What happened there was wrong. But there's a much better way to deal with it than what I was going to do yesterday. And the only reason why there's no amens right now is because we're all saying, yeah, woe is me. You know, you, you know, well, some of my old schoolers in here, you know you licked a stamp and put that bad boy in the slot and you wish to God you had a key to open up the box and pull it back out there. Some of you, you know, you have sinned and then Googled any way that possible to get back an email. Don't do that. When you have to confront 
Sure. Maybe it'd be proper anger over the disunity and the hurt of the heart of God. Not over your own offendedness, but over the heart of God. And then consult with yourself. Wait. Take some time. And then look what He does. He brings these people into an assembly and He reasons with them on a few different thoughts. And for the sake of time, I won't teach all the way through that today, but He reasons with them and He appeals to them on these grounds. The first grounds that He makes the appeal is the redemption of the brothers. The redemption of the family of God. He says to them, He says, Look, don't you remember God redeemed us out of Egypt? God brought us back from being under the heavy weight and burden of all of that down there in Egypt, and now you're going to do the same thing to the brothers. And when we reason and when we appeal to brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, and we come together to get rid of these problems and we confront people, it must come on the grounds of the redemption of Jesus. My brother, listen, if you're upset at somebody else in this church, the very first ground to understand is that your terrible sin, your terrible wickedness, your wickedness that deserves hell, Jesus bore that crushing burden on the cross and gave you free and clear and that's the way that you should live in light of every other believer in the church. How dare you ever or how dare me ever hold grudge when Jesus died for you. Doesn't mean that you can't be careful. Doesn't mean that there's not grounds for slow recovery of relationship. No grounds to harbor. No grounds to hold grudges. No grounds to be resentful. Jesus died for your sin. You should treat other people in light of that. Not only on the grounds of redemption, but on the grounds of love for each other. He said, These are your brothers. These are your brothers not only on the grounds of redemption and love, but on the grounds of the Word of God. He goes on to tell them, you're exacting usury and this is wrong. For in the book of Leviticus, the Bible teaches that the brothers of Israel, that they were not to exact usury upon each other. When you confront somebody, confront them on the grounds of redemption in your own heart. You confront them on the grounds of love for each other. And you confront them on the grounds of the Word of God. Doesn't mean that you, you know, I know some of you are thinking now, I'm going to give them, bless God, I'm going to get my Bible, I'm going to show you what you did right there. You know, I'm not talking about that. What I am saying is, humbly, when you use the Bible humbly, It goes from a conversation where you're horizontally coming at each other to where both of you are putting your arms around each other and you're coming to the vertical Word of God that is always right. And when you show a brother the Word, the argument or the fussing or the fighting that takes place then shifts from back and forth to each other. It shifts over to that person's heart and they now are fighting against the Word. 
And when you use the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is able to come in those times and take the Word and take the Spirit and collide in the heart and make changes that you will never be able to make. If somebody's done you wrong, you might not be able to change them. In fact, I would venture to say you probably will never be able to get them to change. But God can. God can work in their heart. Come on the grounds of redemption. Come on the grounds of brotherly love. Come on the grounds of the Word of God. And the last thing I'll say in that area, come on the grounds of humility. You see what he says? Please, please change. Please give back. There's a pleading that goes on. When we confront, when you are confronted, when you confront somebody, come on the grounds of humility. My brother, my sister, please make this change. Please see this truth. Well, let's look here at the great example. Actually, <laughs> hold on, look back here. I think this is interesting. So, Verse number, um, verse number 12. Look at the proper response. Then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do what you have told us to do. When somebody comes to you and confronts you with sin or problem or something you've done, the right response is not to get bitter. It's not to withdraw. It's not to get defensive. It's to say, you're right, and I'm sorry, and I'll change. <laughs> in church life and in your family life, and life in general, let me, let me help you with something according to the Scripture. According to us, when somebody offends me, my response is, they need to come make that right. And I'll wait for them. I'll wait for them. The biblical teaching is this. Listen, hear me. No distractions. This is, this is, this is what we need. The biblical teaching is this. When somebody offends you, you go make it right with them. Jesus said, if you're on your way to church and you realize that somebody's done you wrong, go make it right with them. Don't wait for somebody that has offended you to come make it right with you. You go make it right with them. But I don't want to. It doesn't matter. It's what the Bible says. Because Jesus understood that all of us in our fallen way are prone to just hold it in and to clam up and to do our thing. And the more you clam up and do your own thing, the more you'll talk to other people about it. If somebody does you wrong, have the guts enough and the biblical fortitude to get up and go speak to them. And you know what you'll find? 
you'll find that probably eight out of ten times you'll go and you'll finally muster up the courage and you'll sit down over a cup of coffee and you'll say, you know what, the other Sunday you were walking through the hall and you said something so flippant and it hurt my heart and that person will melt like butter in your hand because they so did not even know that they did that. And you know what the devil wants you to do? Hold it in. You know what God wants you to do? Go make it right. And when somebody confronts you, don't deflect. Don't tell them all the things that they've done wrong. Own up to it. Say, I'm sorry. And if you're the one that's offended somebody, let me tell you one of the easiest and best ways to diffuse anger and tension. Just say honestly, I messed up and I'm sorry. I say this quite frequently, but I think it's just a Steve proverb. I don't even know if it's in the Scripture, but this is what I'm going to tell you. You can judge the temperature of your Christian life by how often you say, I'm sorry. If that's not something that's in your vocabulary, if that's not something that periodically is a part of your life, uh, eat humble pie, I'm sorry. You're not right with God. You're too big and for your own britches. Look what, uh, look what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah says, boys, that's great. I'm glad that you want to uh, confess sin and get things right. But I'm going to make it a little harder for you. I'm going to call the priests in and you're going to take a vow in front of them and everybody else in this assembly. And you know what? That's a good word for us as well too. Some people, oh, I'm sorry, and then they keep going. I'm sorry, and, and they're this kind of person. You ever know somebody that just like really hurts you or says really hurtful things, and then they say, oh, I'm sorry, but they keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it, and after a while you're like, man, I'm not really sure they're sorry about that. It's good to have your feet held to the fire. We're glad that you want to give back all that you took away. Here's the deal, boys. You're going to make a promise in front of the whole congregation and God's ministers. Now go do it. And on top of that, you know what Nehemiah says? He says, let me show you something. Oh, I, didn't, I got something in that pocket. He said, just as I empty out that pocket, good, no lint. Just as I empty that pocket out and there's nothing there, if you break your promise, I'm going to ask God to empty your life out like that pocket. And you know what they said? Amen. So be it. We accept it. And all the congregation praised God. Isn't that an incredible place for a worship text? Huh? All the worship people in here, choir people, praise team people, praise band people, people like me that sing on the front row and can't hold a tune. Everybody in here that likes worship music, that's a worship text. And where does it come? On the heels of God's community getting right. Nehemiah brings these people into a right relationship with each other.
by asking them to bow before the Lord. Right now, I could force it and keep going, but I I sense in my spirit that this is a good place for us to draw our, our service to a close.